but this morning, uh, we're going to conclude our series called The Time Is Now. And what we've been looking at is the story of the prophet Haggai. A prophet is simply someone who speaks on behalf of God. And um, the prophet Haggai came and he said the time was now to build the temple, to rebuild the temple. And uh, if you were gone uh, any time over the past couple of weeks, I want to just uh, kind of give you a background to the story so that you can uh, get caught up. Um, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, there was a guy by the name of Solomon who was a king. He was David's son. David was the greatest king of the Old Testament. And Solomon came in and we're told that he was considered, he was considered the wisest person, uh, in, uh, the entire world at the time. And because he was so wise, God gave him the ability to actually go and to build the very first temple, uh, of the Jewish people. And everything was amazing and magnificent about this structure, about this building. But once Solomon died, then what transpired was the people's hearts actually turned away from God. They started worshiping other idols. They got distracted. Has anyone ever been distracted before? Just raise your hand. Ever been distracted? Uh, you can type on the stream if you want. I'm distracted now. Uh, but we all get distracted sometimes. And they got distracted. They started worshiping these other idols. And then in the midst of that, they fell far from God. Now, God gives us free will. He says, if you want to be distracted and, and fall away from me, that's absolutely fine. Um, and he allowed that to happen with the people. But he actually put some events in place that then drew the people's hearts back to God. Um, in 587 B.C., a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar from Babylonia actually came and he crushed the southern kingdom of Judah. And he destroyed the temple. Then, after the temple had been destroyed, the people's identity changed. They didn't feel as connected uh, to uh, their homeland anymore. And then to make matters worse, they actually took all of the people and they placed them into captivity for 50 years. For 50 years, they were not citizens of their own government. They couldn't come and go as they wanted. They couldn't worship God the way they wanted to. They were in bondage. They were held as captives for, for, for 50 years. Finally, after these five decades, there were 50,000 Jews that were allowed to return and to go back to rebuild the city. Now, uh, when the people left to uh, rebuild the city. When they first started, they were very excited. And uh, they went at it with, like gangbusters. And they started to actually uh, build the foundation. They built the altar. Everything was going well. But after about 30 days, they got some opposition from a group of people called the Samaritans. And when this opposition came, they just gave up. They just said, that's it. We're not going to do it. It's too hard. We can't do this anymore. And they quit. And it wasn't just for a week or a month or a year, but it actually was for 14 years. 
For 14 years, they never did anything to God's house. Now, they built uh, their own houses. They had no trouble doing that in condos, but they didn't do anything for God's house. And for 14 years, this went on. But eventually, God sends Haggai and he says, hey, the time is now. The time is now to build the temple. And when they came, they began again on this work. But they didn't see the progress that they wanted to be made in this short period of time. And they started to get very, very discouraged. Now, as we pick up the story today, it's in this discouragement that the people are like, God, we're trying to obey you. We're trying to do the right thing, but life is not working out so well. We're trying to do what you told us to do, but we're not making much progress. They're kind of like, where are you, God? We're we're doing our best. We're doing this stuff, but where are the results? What are you doing? Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been working and going at it and doing the best that you can, and yet you're just not seeing the results, and you're kind of like, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm in a small group, I'm coming to church, and yet there's still, my life is still not working out the way that I thought it would. A few years ago, a friend came to my office and uh, was sharing with me that he was struggling with his marriage. And I asked him, I said, well, well, what's the struggle? And he said, well, I've had an affair on my wife for several years, and she just found out, and she hasn't forgiven me. And uh, I thought to myself, I understand why. And I said, well, dude, you've like crossed this big line in marriage. And, you know, she may not just be real quick to forgive. And he says, well, I'm doing the stuff. Like I went to church last week and, you know, I've been reading the Bible and and God's just not really moving very much in my life right now. And I said, okay. I said, well, do these three things uh, this next week. First of all, go apologize to your wife sincerely, sincerely. And no matter what she says or does, you don't get angry. You just do that. Okay, I can do that. Secondly, ask her that, would she be willing to go to counseling? That you're going to counseling and you want to know, would she be willing to? And then finally, start praying for your marriage every single day. And I'm going to pray for you as well. And so he went for a week and we came back together. And I said, well, how's it going? He said, well... She said she'd go to counseling with me, but she still hasn't forgiven me. I just don't think it's working. And I had to look at him and I was like, dude, it's only been a week. And like you've been in this adulterous affair for this long period of time. It's going to take some time. God's not just going to come down like a magic genie and make it all better in a week. And we might look at that story and we might laugh and go, man, that guy was an idiot. But the reality is many times when God doesn't work on the timetable that we want, we often think, well, I tried the thing, I said the prayer, I went to church, and it just didn't work. It's been a week, God. Why aren't you changing this? And then what happens is we get discouraged. And if we're really honest, sometimes what we say is this, is it really worth obeying God? Is it really worth doing what he's calling me 
to do. Now, at this point, most of the time, I give you a big idea and you get all excited and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. And this is going to be great all the way through and, and let's go for it. But we're going to do the big idea, but we're going to do it at the end of the celebration. But this morning, I want to begin with a big problem that every single person in this auditorium and everyone on the stream and the guy on the stage struggles with. Every human being does. It's our big problem. It's your first fill-in, and this is it. Conditional obedience to God. What you and I practice most of the time is what I would call conditional obedience to God. It's like this. God, I'll obey you as long as you kind of do what I want you to do. I'll obey you as long as it doesn't cost me too much. God, I'll do what you want me to do as long as I see the results that need to be seen. But if it becomes uncomfortable, if it becomes inconvenient in any way, if you're not doing what I think you should, then I'm pulling the plug on obedience. And what we give God is conditional obedience. Now, throughout much of my life, what I have lived on is an extreme between obedience and conditional obedience. And do you know what we really call conditional obedience? Disobedience. Uh, delayed obedience, if we wait delayed on it, it really is disobedience. And that is where I have lived much of my life at times. And uh, when this happens, it's very difficult. Uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, there was a couple that came to me and they wanted me to paint their house. Now, I had never painted anything before in my life except finger painting. Uh, in kindergarten. Like I never took an art class. I just was not, I'm still not artistic. It's just not me. But they wanted me to paint their house and their fence. And so I did for an entire summer when I was 18 years old. And at the end of that summer, they gave me $700. It was the most money that I had ever seen in my life. $700. And I was like, "Woo! this is a lot. And I took that money and all of a sudden I had this thought in my head. Remember what your parents taught you and what God's word says is that you should actually tithe. You should give 10% of this to the things of God and to the local church. And so that's what I did. I took $70. I remember the offering plate came by. I'm a PK, a pastor's kid. So we had these big gold plates. that came. I don't know why they were gold. There was never gold that was put in them. But they, these gold plates came by. And I put the $70 in there and I obeyed God. Well, the next year came and somebody had heard that I would painted this house. And a guy came to me and he said, I want you to paint my office. And I said, sure, no problem. I'd love to do that. And I painted his office for the whole summer. And at the end of the summer, I got $1,500. I actually doubled the amount of money that I had made. And you would have thought that someone who had doubled their money would say, wow, God did this for me. I'm going to give a tithe back to God for that. But this was the thing. I had a year of college under my belt right now. And a year of college told me that, you know what? You don't necessarily have to do that anymore. You could actually have a lot of fun with $150. I mean, do you know what $150 does for a college student? Pade hare. And what did I do? I chose conditional obedience. Why? I didn't tithe 
because it was going to cost me too much. Folks, I have grown a lot in my obedience with God. But the truth is, even today, even just a few weeks ago, there are still times that I give into conditional obedience. A couple of weeks ago, our uh, family went on a vacation to Tennessee. And uh, one day, I went down to the workout facility, I got on the treadmill, and I started to run. And while I was working out, a lady was uh, came into the facility. She was pushing a wheelchair with an elderly woman in the wheelchair. And she got to one of those recumbent bicycles where you can bike and use your arms too. And she brought her up to this. And then a trainer came over and actually picked the lady up out of the wheelchair and placed her on this recumbent bike. Well, I'm still running on my treadmill. There's about 30 or 40 people that are in this facility. And all of a sudden, I get a prompting from God. Hey, you know what? You should actually go to that woman. And I want you to tell her you are the strongest person in this workout facility. It was only going to be about 20 steps that I had to take. And it was going to be very easy for me to do that. But immediately, I started thinking about excuses. I started thinking to myself, well, what if I go up to this lady and I do that and I freak her out and she like has a heart attack? What if I go up to her and I I say something and she doesn't receive it very well? What if I go up and talk to her and the other trainer looks at me and thinks I'm giving her a hard time and she actually, he comes up and he beats me up. And so all of these excuses go in my mind and guess what I did? I walked out. Because it wasn't comfortable. It was going to be an inconvenience for me. And I chose conditional obedience, disobedience, over following God. And you know what has been the number one thing that has weighed upon me more than anything else over these last three weeks? It's what would those words have done to that woman had I obeyed God? And I had done that. And the other thing that I've often wondered is, what kind of blessing would God may have given that woman and me if I would have followed through with what he asked me to do? You know, sometimes, folks, this is what happens to me. I'll feel a prompting or I know the right thing to do, but I get into a trap, the trap of temptation That says, well, it's not convenient, it's not comfortable, and because it's not, I'll choose conditional obedience. In our text today, what we're going to see is that God does not give us a whole bunch of options, but God commands us to obey. Let me say that again. God does not give us a ton of options, but he commands us to obey. If you remember at the beginning of uh, our time together, I was sharing how uh, God had come to the people and asked them to rebuild the temple, but they turned their hearts from God and they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do our own thing. And so eventually God calls Haggai, he says, the time is now to rebuild the temple. And he says, I want you to go to the priests, the people who I've called, and I want you to ask them some questions. Now, let me just say that when I first ask these questions to you, they're going to sound very weird, but we're going to try to unweird them. okay? and then by the end of our time together, I think it'll make much more sense to you. 
So in Haggai chapter 2, in verse 12, uh, this is what it says. Haggai says to the priest, If one of you is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robes. Now, let's just stop there for a minute, because you might be saying, what's that all about? That's kind of weird. I don't see anybody kind of carrying meat in their robes very much. Well, let me kind of explain it to you. Uh, After uh, the sacrifice was made, the animal was there, they would take meat that was holy and sanctified unto God, and they would place it into their robe, and they would wrap it up. And that meat was holy. It was holy unto God. It represented the sacrifice of the people to God for the forgiveness of their sins. And as the priest would walk around, what Haggai is going to ask him is, well, if you're walking around and that which is holy rubs up against something that is unholy, does that unholy thing then actually become holy? And so Haggai asks, He says, if someone is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robe and his robe happens to brush up against some bread or stew or wine or olive oil or any other kind of food, will it become holy? And what do the priest say? The priest says what? No, no. In other words, the holiness doesn't rub off. A modern day example would be like this. Let's say I go and I wash my hands. My hands are clean. And then I go and I touch a plate that has spaghetti sauce all over it. Now, if I touch that with my clean hands, do, 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 does that plate become clean? Because I have clean hands. Does it become clean? No, it doesn't become clean at all. And this is what he illustrates in verse 13. Haggai says this, if someone becomes ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person, in other words, the person is not clean now. You, you, in Jewish law, if you touch a dead person, you're unclean. You're unclean. This makes you unclean. And then if that person touches any of the food that has been, you know, given as holy food, will they be defiled? Will that meat be defiled in the midst of that? Will that person be defiled? And the priest answers, yes. And what Haggai is is doing here is he's basically showing that sin is like a disease. And sin spreads way faster and easier than holiness. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? Sin spreads way faster Then what holiness does? Paul put it this way in the New Testament. He said, bad company corrupts what kind of behavior? Good character, good behavior. Bad company corrupts good character. He didn't say good company cleanses bad behavior. He said that there is this corruptive kind of thing about sin that when you have it, You could say that that sin is kind of like spaghetti sauce. And if you touch it or it gets out, it goes everywhere and it stains everything that it touches. Now, this is where it kind of gets tough uh, in verse 14. Haggai responded this way. Uh, He said, God says this. This is how it is with this people. 
Remember that a couple weeks ago? God's not calling them my people anymore. He says, with this people and this nation, says the Lord, everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. We could kind of say it like this. When your heart isn't right with God, everything you do is wrong. Now let that sink in for a moment. Think about it. When your heart is not right with God, everything that you do then is wrong. Now, I'm sure some of you are pushing back right now and going, I don't agree with that, Chris. I don't believe that. Some of you are on the stream maybe right now and you're like, I'm going to take a break and I'll come back. Uh, I don't like this. No, 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 no. Let me give you an example from parenting that will prove this, that when your heart is not right, then everything you do beyond that is wrong. Let's say that you have two kids and one kid uh, does something really bad and mean to the other kid. And so if you're a good parent, what you tell them is, hey, you need to go tell your brother or sister that you're sorry. And so this is usually what happens. Sorry! And then they walk away. And you're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Right thing, wrong heart. Right thing, wrong heart. You're almost there. You're getting closer, but... No, no, no. I want you to go over and say it like you mean it. Sorry. Okay, that's better. That's better, but it can be even better than that. I want you to go over and say sorry and give them a hug. Sorry. Does that ever happen in your house when our girls were little? We'd do that and they, you know, that's it. This is what I'm saying with this, folks. Attitude matters. Attitude really, really matters. If your heart isn't right, whatever you do is wrong. So what do we do and how do we see this often in our own lives? God, I'll obey you. I'll do what you want. I'll do it as long as you do it the way that I want you to do. I'll obey you as long as it doesn't cost me something. I'll obey you as long as it's not inconvenient for me. And folks, this is dead wrong. We obey God not so that he will bless us. We obey God because we love him. Let me say that again. We obey God not because he will bless us. We obey him so that we love him. We obey him not because we're going to get blessings from heaven. We obey him because we love God. It is a heart issue. When verse 15, Haggai continues to speak uh, to the people on behalf of God. He says this, look at what is happening to you. Before you begin to lay down the foundation of the Lord's temple. You might remember in week one that when the people were getting ready to uh, build the temple, the thing was there was a part of them as they went through that process that they 
just kind of felt in their heart that there was something that was missing. They wanted meaning in their life. They wanted God to do something. The problem was, is that they felt empty inside. You might remember they said, we have all the drink we want, and yet we're thirsty. We have all the food we want, and yet we're still hungry. We have this, and yet it's not enough. And maybe for some of you right now, you're working your tail off. You're doing everything you can. You're trying to honor God in the right ways. And the reality is you feel like I'm not getting ahead at all. Nothing's moving. Nothing's changing. And so God reminds them through the prophet Haggai, remember what it was like before you were building the foundation. Remember where you were. And then in verse 16, he says this, when you hoped for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. It would be like, you know, I make $20 an hour, but when you get your paycheck, it's half of that. You're like, what's up with that? You're working hard, but you're simply not getting ahead. It's not working. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. Now, why do you think this was happening to God's people? Verse 17, and this is really tough. This is hard. God says this. The reason why I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you work so hard to produce. Ouch. Ouch. Now, I don't know you about you, but I don't like this picture of God. Can I say that and still live? I don't like this picture of God. I mean, it's like the people were saying, we're obeying you, we're doing the things that you want us to do, and yet our crops are not being produced, you're not doing what we want you to do. And finally, God, we're just wondering, is this thing worth it anymore? Is it worth obeying you? God, if you are a loving God, if you're a kind God, if you're a giving God, if it's a God that I want to serve, it doesn't seem that you should be about this. Why would you do this to us, God? Now, the next part of the verse helps us to see it. Verse 17 says this. God says, I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. Even so, you refuse to return to me, says the Lord. And there it is. There's our reason. God is not doing this to punish the people. He's doing this to try to restore them so that their hearts would come back to him. You know, what I found in my own life is that sometimes God may not not change the negative situation in my life because what God is really wanting to do is to change my heart. There are times in which God may not change your situation because what he's more concerned about is your heart. Now, in a message like this, people will leave and they'll think different things. So I want to be very clear on what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is right now, if you're going through something very difficult and bad in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that you deserve it. And it doesn't mean that God has caused it in your life. 
What it means is that sometimes tough stuff happens to our lives because God is more concerned about our heart than the situation. Now, many, many more times, most of the time, the reason bad things happen to us is because there is an evil one who wants to come and destroy God's people. That's Satan's entire desire to destroy you. And other times it's just because we live in a sinful, fallen world and bad things happen to good people. So if you're going through something right now, I'm not saying that you deserve it or that God is causing it. I'm just saying that sometimes when we go through things, God may not jump in and, and, and save the day because he's concerned not about the situation, but the way that our heart looks in the process. You know what I, I love most of all is that God says your life will actually be blessed more if you'll turn to me. And so sometimes I'll allow things to happen, not to hurt you, but so that I can have your heart. And look at the loving part that we find in the story of what God did. The only thing that God did, folks, was he cut off the supply. He cut off the supply. He didn't make them sick. He didn't give them boils. He didn't kill them. He did not kill their children. He didn't do something cruel. He simply cut off the supply. Basically, he wanted to get their attention so that they would turn back to him. Oh yeah, God, I get it now. You're the provider. You give everything that I have that's in my hand. You are the one who controls the season. We need you, God. We, we, we need our, our very breath is dependent upon you. We give our hearts to you, God. We're, we're coming back to you. And in a very similar way that a loving parent might do to a child, if you set them up with their own apartment or you send them off to college and, and you keep doing things and they just keep, you know, messing up and spending on uh, alcohol and drugs and everything. And you just keep doing that. And eventually you get to the point where you said, it's not helping you anymore. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to cut you off. Now, The way we're going to close now is to give you the big idea. The thing that you can live with uh, in your own life and with God in your relationship with Him. And it's this. Here's the big idea. God says, more than anything else, I want your heart. More than anything else in this world, what God says is, I want your heart. Because he says, if I have your heart, then your life will be blessed. More than anything else, I want your heart. 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 God says this, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your what? Heart. He wants your heart. Jesus said the greatest commandment was this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart. With all your soul, with all your mind. Because it's all about the heart. God says, I want your heart. I want your heart more than anything else. I want your heart. You know, as a pastor, I know that God wants my heart. The problem is is that sometimes I get distracted. And 
I might praise him with my lips, but my heart can be far from him. In fact, there have been different times in my ministry where I'm doing stuff for God. I'm doing the work for God. God just doesn't have my heart. I'm doing something for him, but he doesn't have my heart. Now, here's the beauty of this whole message that Haggai gives from God to the people. In this, once God gets their hearts, that's, that was the most important thing. It was like God got their hearts. He, the people turned back to him. And because their hearts came back to God, what does God do? God gives blessings to them. God said this, I am giving you this promise. When? When? Now. The time is now to build the temple. I give you this promise that while the seed is still in the ground, he said this, you have not harvested your grain and your grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees have not yet produced their crops. In other words, you've not even planted anything. It's not even harvest time. But here is what the Lord God says. But from this day forward, I will do what? What's he say? God says, I will bless you. I will bless you. I will choose to bless you. Even though you haven't planted the seed in the ground, I promise you, I promise you, wherever you're at, whatever's going through, there is a harvest of blessing that's coming. I sensed it so much as I was, I was texting with a friend of mine this week. And he said, we're hoping to get in to bring some of the, the wheat in from the harvest. And we're hoping it doesn't rain. And I thought to myself, it's such a great example that they planted, they had it all ready. But God says, even when you don't plant, I'll choose to come in and I'll bring that if I have your heart. Not because you built the temple, but because you gave me your heart. Above all else, God says, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your heart. Folks, we do not obey God to receive his blessings. We obey God because we love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And I'm just wondering today that maybe on the 4th of July weekend, as we talk about independence of a country, which is an amazing thing to celebrate, Maybe the reality is in your own life, though, you become independent away from God. God has your life, but it's been a while since maybe he's had your heart. And maybe today is the day that you say, God, I'm coming back to you. I give you my heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would do a work in us. You would do a work for everyone in this auditorium. You would do a great work for each person that's watching on the stream right now. 
Do a work in our hearts, God, in our minds, in our souls. Maybe you're sitting there right now, and the truth is that if you were honest, that God is in your life, but you've been distracted, and you've given your life to Christ, but the reality is that you've been distracted by your heart lately. Your heart's been distracted from the things of God. Maybe you praise God even with your lips, but your heart is far from him. But maybe today is the day that you're like, I want to change. I want to be different. This is the day I'm going to do something different. I want to pursue God with my whole heart. And if that's you, if today's the day where you want to renew your heart with God, I'm going to ask you to do a bold thing, every eye closed, no one looking around. But if right now you're like, I want to renew my heart with you, God. You have my life, but God, my heart's been far. I invite you to just raise your hand and say, God, that's me, me too. God, I thank you for each hand that is raised. May your Holy Spirit do a work inwardly in their hearts. Help us to put you first, God, above everything else. And run into your arms with joyful hearts that are filled as we return to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can put your arm down.